Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. We're waiting for DoorDash to start trading under the ticker DASH and also Airbnb expected to price later today above the $56 to $60 range according to Dow Jones in the last few minutes. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about IPOs and what happens before they start trading and what happens after. Brianne Lynch is Head of Business Development and Partnerships at Equity Zen, which is a marketplace for buying pre-IPO shares for late-stage VC-backed companies. So exactly what we're talking about. Brian, if one of us were allowed to buy the shares of DoorDash or get involved, is, is it too late to do that today? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, one that we've talked a lot about uh, here at Equities Then We've seen the share price go up in the private markets. There's obviously a lot of demand. Um, and it's pretty wild to see that a company that raised capital just this summer at a $16 billion valuation is now targeting a $38 billion valuation. There's indications that the stock could trade or open around 125, 130. Uh, so it's a big question considering that this year has been a year of such explosive growth, but growth that is likely not repeatable uh, in the long future. So it's interesting. I mean, this IPO market is going to be a banner year for IPOs. And given all the uncertainty in the world, I guess that's a pleasant surprise. What are you hearing from some of the companies you deal with? How are they thinking about the IPO market today, given the world we live in? Yeah, I think a lot of these private companies have seen that this is a very opportune time to test the public market. IPOs have returned over 111% year-to-date versus 16 or so percent for the S&P 500. And this current environment where uh, we have two vaccines on the way, the election is behind us and some of that volatility, and the market has rallied to all-time highs, a lot of companies think this is kind of a prime environment to make their public market debut. So we expect to see more companies uh, making these same moves, especially now that Backs, direct listings, and other options are available to them as well. So, Brianna, Equity Zen is the secondary marketplace. So, you sell pre IPO shares. Now, the minimum investment is $10,000, but retail investors can buy these shares. So, are, are, are you busy today? Is the secondary marketplace you know, full of people buying and selling these shares today? Yeah, so Equity Zen's marketplace has been busier than ever over the past few quarters. We've seen record demand. Um, And there's a big need in the retail accredited market to have access to these types of companies before they go public. We've seen over the past 10 years that a lot of the growth um, and return potential for these companies has happened in the private markets, given the abundance of venture capital available. So it's really important for investors to be able to participate in that growth to achieve successful outcomes for their investment portfolios. So, Brianne, what are the um, the trends here? You know, companies like you are just a are, you know are kind of a relatively new phenomena where you can provide pre market trading for a lot of these private companies here. What's been kind of the activity level? Are people looking to get more liquidity prior to the IPO? As these IPOs seem to be put off longer and longer because they don't companies don't really need to go public in many cases. So, are you seeing increased demand for you know market making that you guys provide? 
You're absolutely right. And we talk to shareholders day in and day out who are looking for liquidity. A lot of these shareholders are early employees who have been with these companies for a long time. And for many of these employees, the vast majority of their net worth is tied up in the shares of the company they work for. So from a pure portfolio diversification perspective, uh, that's a risky position to be in. And also these employees may be looking to pay off loans or put a down payment on a house. So there is that need for liquidity pre-IPO. And Equity Zen's mission is to be able to provide that to shareholders um, across the spectrum. Which is busier, Airbnb or DoorDash? Yeah. (laughs) Brian, which is busier, Airbnb or DoorDash? Uh, We've seen demand for both in the private markets, um, and I think investors both today and tomorrow uh, in the public markets are very excited to be able to participate as well. Okay. Brian Lynch, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really great to chat with you here as we have uh, DoorDash about ready to trade later today and Airbnb tomorrow. Brian Lynch, Head of Business Development and Partnerships at Equity Zen. Again, 125-130 indication uh, for uh, DoorDash. Just an extraordinary move off of the, uh, the, you know, the trading range that they had set prior to the offering here. So again, the demand indicating that demand uh, very, very strong there for DoorDash. So we'll see how that trades today. Bodes well for Airbnb, which looks to price after the close uh, tonight. We have just had an auction and we have a 10-year yield at above 94 basis points. We also have lots of Federal Reserve things to talk about with our next guest, who is Jim Vogel of FHN Financial. And Jim, welcome from Memphis, Tennessee today to talk to us. But I do have to start, Jim, with this this IPO that we're waiting on trading for, <laughs> Dash, DoorDash. It's up to 170 now, Jim. On days like this, what do you see around you in, in the marketplace? I mean, are people even paying attention to treasuries? Uh, yes, we're always paying attention well. to treasuries. There's good <laughs> flows this morning, but we are we are not moving in multiple basis points or percentage points for every minute right now, the way DoorDash might be. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> Jim, Jamie Dimon was out some comments recently where he said he would not touch treasuries with a ten foot pole. Do you agree with Mr. Dimon? <laughs> well, uh, a lot of people do, but those same people that agree with them also own a lot of treasuries. Okay. It's it's not ironic that uh, Jamie Dimon says that when out of a half a trillion dollar investment portfolio, 40% of that is in treasuries at his own institution. So why would he say that? I mean, is he trying to, you know, warn people about what's coming? Is he complaining that, you know, net interest margins aren't all that great at his bank? What 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 is the impetus for that? You know, we've, to a degree, people are still in shock that rates have gone this low and stayed this low. Mm. We were supposed to be seeing the Fed taking rates up to 3.5% perhaps this year. Uh, we were looking forward to... Uh, a new administration, more stimulus, a different economy, and instead rates are extraordinarily low. So I took his comments to just simply mean what's going on, this cannot be right. Yeah. But actually what what is not right is the enormous amount of savings that are in bank institutions right now. So, Jim, one of the things that continues to be a question mark for all investors, but certainly in the Treasury market, is what kind of fiscal stimulus are we going to get out of Washington, if any, 
Um, and it looks like uh, Secretary Mnuchin has inserted the White House back into the discussion. Maybe that's good news. What are you kind of kind of figuring into your calculus here? Well, unfortunately, with all the things that are going on around the country in terms of possible or, excuse me, very real and potentially worse pandemic slowdowns, the size of the stimulus at $900 billion or $600 billion may have been adequate this summer. It's going to be inadequate for the first quarter of 2021 at the rate we're going right now. So that's part one. Right. And part two? Ah, thanks. Part two <laughs> is that uh, the idea is the idea of targeted stimulus without broader moves really doesn't work either because by the time you can get targeted stimulus out, um, it's going to be early February and it's not going to do all that much. What does work are cash payments and cash in people's bank accounts in January. It's unlikely that we're going to get there based on the situation as of this morning. Well, it's interesting. CNN is reporting that 10,000 American restaurants will likely close in the next three weeks. So, boy, if I'm a lawmaker down in Washington and that that would get my attention here. What do you think, um, Jim, that the Fed can do? It seems like the Fed has done pretty much everything that it can do. Do you expect anything else or just kind of steady as she goes here? Uh, steady as it goes. Uh, the one thing I think after everything we've seen in the last couple of weeks is we should anticipate next week's dot plot looks almost exactly like September's. That's interesting. Um, we have had some warnings about inflation taking off, Jim. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that if the Fed staff uh, is taking a good bit different look at inflation, they're very uh, concerned that the core will stay low. They're measuring inflation relative to where it is right now. The people talking about higher inflation next year are frequently doing a year-over-year comparison, which absolutely is going to be higher after inflation fell in the first half of last year, Mm. excuse me, of this year. All right. So, Jim, um, 30 seconds. Where do you see value anywhere along the yield curve here, given what we see in the marketplace and given what we hear from Fed Chairman Powell about his view uh, of the interest rate environment? The the entire uh, pretty much zero to five-year part of the curve is fair value at this point. The five-year is a little steep relative to Fed policy, which right now means that the best values are in seven years. We talk about that a lot, but we re-ran all of our numbers and analytics this morning and closed above 65 basis points on seven-year treasuries. Um, they're the best uh, risk-adjusted value out there right now. Wow. Hey, Jim, thanks so much uh, for joining us. As always, Jim Vogel, interest rate strategist for FHN uh, Financial. And uh, it's interesting to try to find some value, Vani, in the credit markets here, given how tight uh, a lot of things are trading. And, and again, given where Fed Chairman Powell says he expects rates to be. And you just heard Jim saying, you know, how much savings there are in bank accounts. It's really, really fascinating if you wanted to be safe. And, uh, you know, you, you don't have that much choice. You may as well leave it in the bank account. <laughs> exactly right. So just looking at our good friends at DoorDash, get you a price quote again. Still not open. Bid ask 170 to 175. 
Well, Tom Keen often talks about the courage to be in the market. And with equity indices at or near uh, all-time highs, that is certainly an apt discussion point right here, particularly as we think about uh, 2021. John Lynch, Chief Investment Officer for Comerica Asset Management, joins us now. John, I'd love to step back 30,000 feet. We've had a, you know, despite all the craziness of this year, uh, equity markets, uh, risk markets in general have done, you know, surprisingly well. What is your view of the equity markets right here, right now? Hey, Paul, good morning. Uh, yes, the uh, the rally has been unbelievable since uh, last February, last March. But to specifically to your question, right now, I think we're 5 or 6% overvalued. Um, you know, I always want to make sure the math works when making uh, forecasts. And uh, I think the S&P 500, for example, can do earnings of about $135 this year. And really, you're starting to stretch multiples past 3500 in my estimation. Have to ask you about DoorDash. We are now reporting that it's indicated <laughs> to open. And get this, you, you probably aren't even up to date yourself, even if you've been watching it. 155 to $160 a share. It's been jumping in $5 increments, which is more than typical IPOs. Yes, there's a... Good morning, Bonnie. I think there's a, a couple of things investors have to keep in mind. Um, you know, while I believe we might be 5 or 6% overvalued in the near term, uh, there are a variety of areas that show the market is not overvalued. We don't necessarily see, uh, you know, fund flows into equities. I don't see significant or alarming M&A activity. But one area that could be a red flag would be the IPO market. And uh, uh, as you suggested this morning, uh, it's just amazing the, the, the pre-market bids or the pre-opening bids on, uh, on that IPO. Well, just as in the last two minutes, 160 to 165 is a bit ass spread there on the Bloomberg terminal. Um, you know, I just love, John, to get your thoughts here just about one of the, the bigger discussions that we've heard over the last several months is kind of, okay, I, I get the bullish call in the market. We've got a lot of pent up demand in the economy. Vaccines are, are coming. Interest rates are low and are likely to stay low. I, I've heard all that. Now it's a question of how do I want to play it? Do I want to stay with the tried and true great top-line growth stories that have propelled this market really since the financial crisis, or do I rotate into some of the more cyclical names, maybe even some of the smaller cap names? How, do, how are you guys think, thinking about that at Comerica? Yeah, we're very much, uh, in our 2021 outlook, we made sure we included a chart of the equally weighted S&P 500 relative to the cap-weighted index. And I think one way investors can view it is the big five versus the other 495. And uh, the big five was able to grow this year on a combination of PE expansion, valuation expansion, as well as profits. The other 495 didn't really have profits uh, in their back pocket, if you will, and uh, it was very much a valuation game. But as we do the reopening rotation trade, uh, you know, I still think we're going to have a comeuppance in the first quarter uh, with targeted restrictions and slower than anticipated growth. Uh, but nonetheless, spreading that out. Uh, you know, and, and you made you make a point about rates. The Fed has said one thing, right? But look at look at what break evens are doing. Look what the ten years doing. Even though we're seeing uh, increased cases, increased hospitalizations, and unfortunately increased deaths. Uh, so from that standpoint, um, I, I think what you're going to see as we as the reopening fundamental, if you will, the trend gathers root, say, in the end of the first quarter, early second quarter. It's very much a value game. It's very much a industrials, energy, financials, materials, 
the reopening trade, I think, will be will be very important, and I think that'll be a healthy development because, as you all know, uh, growth has dramatically outperformed value when the Fed was essentially just printing money. But now that we are really transitioning from monetary leadership, and if we can get through this $900 billion bickering in D.C. right now, uh, it'll be more of a fiscal leadership, if not fiscal dependency, but that either way, that infrastructure aspect of that should bode very well for the value and the industrials and uh, some of the other sectors that I just highlighted. Speaking of reopening, John, you're down there in beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina. Tell us how the economy is and have you seen an influx of people from larger cities, perhaps, or, you know, have the outskirts seen that? You know, it's amazing. The uh, the housing market has been uh, much like uh, you know, the rest of the nation, but certainly you'll see in the in the warmer climates like the Carolinas, uh, you know, very, very strong housing market. Uh, it's not uh, it's not unusual to see multiple bids in a, in a single afternoon. Uh, so the, the housing market is moving very quickly. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that corporate among many things that corporations have learned in 2020 is that this remote work, uh, you know, has teeth has traction and um, to the degree the warmer climates uh, uh, will play into that. I think that will continue to bode well for the southeast and, and the southwest. Hey, John, just just real quickly, did the, the, the presidential election change your 2021 outlook or kind of how are you viewing that? Yes. Well, we were looking for uh, either way. We were looking for some degree of infrastructure. Uh, I understand fully that uh, we still need to have relief, and I like to make the distinction between a relief package and an infrastructure package, because a relief package really is income replacement, right? And when you see the transfer payments, when you see personal incomes not largely affected in spite of all that's happened, right, with 10 or 15 million fewer people working, that income replacement was a necessity. But I think for the reopening rotation uh, really to become uh, more of an economic fundamental grower, you need to see infrastructure. And I think the right. team that Biden has assembled, particularly with Janet Yellen at Treasury, yes. they are Keynesians, and they're going to be very much focused on the multiplier of infrastructure. Well, John, we certainly hope uh, that we'll speak to you again before all that is put in place. John Lynch is CIO of Comerica Asset Management, based in beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina. All right, so I'm running some errands yesterday, and I'm at the UPS store, and I see the UPS guy out front uh, with the truck loading and unloading boxes. But it wasn't the brown UPS truck. It was a U-Haul truck, and I was chatting with the guy, and he says, yeah, they have so much demand that they ran out of trucks. And so they're out there renting U-Haul trucks, Avis trucks, and I said, how often does that happen? He says, well... It happens a lot during the peak holiday season, but he said he's been driving a U-Haul truck uh, since March because the demand has just been incredible. So I said, I have to talk to Lee Klaskow. Lee Klaskow is our senior transportation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Lee, um, you know, what's going on out there? Are the boxes getting delivered? Are the FedEx and UPS guys, are they able to keep up? Uh, You know, it it is a challenge. And, you know, service is uh, definitely, um, you know, suffering a little bit, but I, I would say the, the industry is in doing a really good job. The industry is facing a prolonged peak season. I mean, typically you have peak a little before Thanksgiving through Christmas, uh, but because of the pandemic and stay-at-home orders and people just, you know, buying a lot more stuff online, 
uh, it's been a prolonged peak really since uh, the second quarter. Uh, and then uh, UPS and FedEx have uh, have done a really good job at managing their their networks to handle that because you know those home deliveries tend to have um, a smaller margins than a typical B two B delivery. Uh, so what they've been doing is they've been increasing prices, uh, they've been adding surcharges, uh, and some of the investments that they've made over the years that you know the market has probably questioned uh, because they had a, some uh, accelerated capex spend. Uh, really seems to be paying off, and, and a lot of that is through automation and technology, uh, and it's providing some relief uh, when the network is jammed. And also, both uh, FedEx and UPS are offering uh, weekend deliveries, something they really didn't do for a long time, uh, and just to be more competitive with that second-day delivery that we all expect, uh, given uh, you know what Amazon does. Uh, they're able to do that now and, and deliver, you know, your 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 um, whatever you're ordering online on a Saturday or a Sunday, and it kind of smooths out their network. So, Lee, will this be a leading indicator for what happens to our behavior post-pandemic? Have FedEx, UPS, DHL, and so on, have they started to try to buy more for their fleet, or are they continuing to rent from the likes of U-Haul and and all these other places that Paul saw evidence of? Well, I think they're, they're doing both because, you know, you don't want to build the church for Easter uh, service. So uh, <laughs> you know, th- what they're doing is, you know, they're probably uh, investing uh, more uh, in, in equipment, uh, but they're also, you know, not necessarily jumping in head first because the reality is is that the pandemic has probably pushed forward e-commerce uh, penetration by three or five years. Um, so there is going to be some secular changes once we get back to a more, quote-unquote, normalized lifestyle. Um, but, you know, more people are, um, you know, um, buying things online that they might have not uh, prior to the pandemic. Um, and you have that coupled with the fact that, the, uh, like I said earlier, the industry is operating six or seven days a week. Um, they uh, have a lot more in terms of automation. They're able to handle more packages. And the good news for FedEx and UPS is that, you know, as they do more home deliveries, that increases their density and as I mentioned earlier, those uh, margins tend to be a little lighter than the B2B. As you add density, that does improve the margins. Um, so, you know, you could see some, uh, some decent margin expansion uh, next year as things uh, normalize in, their, uh, in uh, FedEx's ground business or UPS's uh, domestic business. So, Lee, I'm looking at the stocks in year-to-date performance. FedEx up 99%, 52-week high today. Uh, UPS up about 45%. It looks like I missed my trade here. What's the outlook for these names over the next couple of years? Well, I'll tell you. You know, there's there's a lot of folks out there that are uh, extremely bullish uh, on the sell side on uh, on FedEx uh, and 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 maybe a little lesser so on UPS. Uh, a lot of people have jumped on the bandwagon for for FedEx recently. You know, uh, we we've been relatively optimistic on the name for a long time. Uh, you know, what I would say is that uh, we were probably uh, way too early. Uh, but, you know, what the name is, is starting to do is um, they're just really the investments that they've made in the past are really starting to pay off uh, because of that new density that they're getting. And also the, you know, the unsung hero and, and what we don't know yet is how good is the TNT acquisition that they made a couple of years ago going to be in a post-pandemic world? You know, we think that the integration benefits that they've been doing and getting really haven't come to the surface because of the backdrop of, you know, weak B2B business uh, in Europe. Uh, but as that comes back, 
uh, you know, we do believe that uh, it'll be a, a not only a competitive advantage for FedEx to get more freight onto its network, but it'll also be able to really improve the TNT business, which was kind of a lagger within the global industry. So, Lee, what's the outlook for the likes of a DoorDash then? I mean, I know that that's not exactly the type of company that you you cover, but there is just a sort of similar relationship. I mean, if, if this is, as you say, Easter time in religion, then then does that mean that a DoorDash will also see a drop-off when this goes away? I, I mean, I, I don't cover the name, but I, I would just guess that people's uh, buying habits will change. You know, you will have people that will... Uh, you know, continue to buy from DoorDash, but maybe instead of doing it five days a week, they're only doing it once a week. So, um, you know, I, I know personally speaking, anecdotally speaking, I can't wait to go to a restaurant again. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really miss, you know, having a, uh, uh, a well-cooked meal. Uh, not to say that uh, I don't cook well myself, but like it's always better out with friends. So, um, you know, it definitely will have somewhat of an impact. Hey, Lee, one thing that I've noticed really this Christmas season is how many Amazon Prime trucks there are on the road. It seems like they're just everywhere. What does that mean for the UPSs and the FedExs of the world? Yeah, so, you know, what Amazon's doing, in our view, is something that Walmart's done, uh, you know, in, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, they built out their own transportation network. Walmart operates one of the largest truckload fleets in America, you know, and, it's, and it kind of dwarfs some of the publicly traded um, truckload fleets that, that we cover uh, in terms of size. So, you know, what, what, what Amazon is trying to do is they're trying to control their, their purchase transportation costs, and they're doing that by outsourcing with um, – you know, uh, with contractors, uh, exclusive contractors that, that just work for uh, Amazon. And, you know, it is somewhat of a similar um, model that, that FedEx does. I mean, FedEx ground employees are, or uh, FedEx ground um, uh, drivers and delivery people aren't employees of FedEx. They're, they're independent contractors. So uh, it's not a new model. Uh, you know, they will, um, Amazon wants to control more of their supply chain. Uh, it'll still be a big buyer of transportation for UPS. FedEx, not so much. It's a, it's a lot bigger part of UPS than uh, than it is FedEx. Um, but, you know, they're just looking to diversify and, and, and to control their own costs. And you know, they're doing that with uh, couriers, and they're doing that with an air fleet as well. All right. Lee, thank you so much for all of the intelligence. Literally, Lee comes from Bloomberg Intelligence. He's their senior transport, logistics, and shippings analyst, and we appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.